happy Wednesday, Women of Strength. It is our favorite day of the week, and it is even more of my favorite today because I have a pretty incredible client that we are going to be talking to today, and gosh, you guys, there are so many things about her story that are just going to blow your mind, and so I'm not going to tell all the story for her, I promise, but just a couple highlights. She gave birth right at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. She switched providers twice. She walked out of a hospital mid-induction, like Pitocin was started in everything, to to go to a different (laughs) hospital that I could be allowed out to support her in. She had labored for two days. She developed preeclampsia during her labor. And it was an IVF baby and her first birth was preemie and she had preeclampsia then. And it says like so many really, 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 really cool things to this story. And I cannot wait to hear it from her perspective because it, it was pretty amazing from my perspective. But before we get into fangirling all over Elisa, Megan has mm-hmm. a review of the week for us. We do. And oh my gosh, this is long. And if you have listened to other podcasts, you know how much I struggle reading reviews because my mind like goes crazy while I'm reading. But I really like this review. Um, it's actually a fresh one. And this is by Spring R on Apple iTunes. And she, the topic or this, the status at the top is wow, dot, 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 just wow, exclamation point. And so it caught my attention and it says, I'm what I like to consider a pretty new mom, but I'm also a C-section mom. For a while, I really thought that I would always be. I hit some pretty dark places, but this podcast has given me light. I listen to multiple episodes a day and have a long stream of notes on my phone. Let me add, I'm not pregnant again, but that's how prepared I want to be when I do get there for our next baby. This podcast has given me my first tool to get there. Recently, as quarantine life has become the new normal, I've almost always got an episode buzzing in my ear. My husband said I've got a bit of an addiction. (laughs) That's my husband would say the same thing. I get like hooked on things and he's like, stop, like you have to move on. You have to do things in our life. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. It can just be in my ear. So um, I feel you, girl. I snapped back and it says I snapped back really quick and said, I've got hope. I love that. That just gave me chills. It helps me believe in myself. He quickly got quiet. These ladies answered personal message asking for help. I just can't say enough good things. They are just that good. This podcast is just that good. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And thank you guys from the bottom of our heart. We love your reviews. And that did. It gave me chills. And I feel like I can relate, you know, after my first C-section, I also thought, okay, well, this is my journey. You know, this is what I have to do. I have to have a C-section every time, even though I didn't desire that. So we're glad that we can create hope for you, hun. We love that review so much. We read it twice. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, I read that one when we recorded last week, but it's for an episode that's coming after this episode. That's so, so funny. It is funny, but like, it's okay. I, I don't remember fine. reading that. Yeah. No, I did because like it just stood out to me too. Like it is really it happy. Did. And yeah. one day I'm going to get organized again and we are going to have our reviews organized so that we don't repeat them. But guess what? In an episode coming up, you're going to be able to hear this review again. <laughs> she, she's lucky. She got both of her, her yeah. uh, 
thing read twice. I love it. Cool. <laughs> Perfect. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. All right. Well, getting into the episode, we, oh my gosh, we, I just, I can't, I just want to tell, I just, I want to rave and tell Gush about the story, right? But I'm not going to, but before we get into it and, and bring Elisa on, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her. She is a therapist, a professional therapist, Dr. Zimmerman, psychologist. Wait, Elisa, are you a therapist oh, or psychologist? Not, let's be clear. I am not a psychologist. I haven't taken my licensure exam yet. Yet. I will be Doctor, a psychologist once I am licensed. Dr. Zimmerman, soon to be psychologist, is a psychology resident and therapist at Utah Valley University. She has been working as a therapist for close to 10 years while completing her PhD in counseling psychology. She's the mom of two girls and a brand new baby boy. Her and her husband live in Utah and have been married for five years. And let me tell you, can I just tell a little story first? <laughs> Sorry. Sure. I was just tell a little story. So I remember when you contacted me, Elisa, you're, you contacted the VBAC link. Right. And you're like, I just found out I'm pregnant. I want one of you to be my doula. I don't really care who it is, but I had preeclampsia with my first pregnancy. And so I know Julie did too. And so maybe that would be a good fit. And luckily, I was the one to get your message. And I was like, I'll do it. I'll do it. And like your, I think your pee stick was like still wet, probably like when you reached out to us. I was so I mean, excited. Yeah, I think I was, I was maybe like four weeks. <laughs> yeah, it was really early on. And so I, I really love it when clients hire me early on because we have such a long time to develop a relationship and really get to know each other. And let me tell you, like, We've had lots of conversations and opinions about The Bachelor, <laughs> and we're talking about, um, oh my gosh, what were the other shows? Bachelor in Paradise. I think we went to <laughs> two Bachelor seasons, maybe. Like, I'm not sure. But Audible. we were next to each other, like, are you watching this now? Are you all caught up? Like, I have to vent about this. And um, so that was pretty fun. I just really, really love her, and I am so excited for her to share her story because it is packed with intuition and determination and strength and overcoming big challenges, and I'm just really proud of her. And without further ado, let's turn it over to Elisa. Okay, so I guess I'll start by talking about my, so my first baby. Well, eh, I'll start a little before that. So my husband and I have been married for about five years. We have a, a 10-year-old daughter from his first marriage. Um, and I knew from the time I was a teenager that I would struggle with infertility. And so we kind of went right into infertility treatments. And I got pregnant from IVF. It was our first try at IVF. We had done a couple other things that were unsuccessful. But I got pregnant first try and had like a really unremarkable pregnancy for the most part. Like, I didn't really get sick at all. I always felt her moving. Like, it was 
I wanted to have a girl and it was a girl. Um, I had gestational diabetes with my first pregnancy, but it was totally managed. I didn't have to do any meds. I really didn't even have to change much of my diet. Like I just took my blood sugar and things stayed fine. And so it just wasn't, it just wasn't a big deal. Nobody was um, really worried about much. I was with a midwife group and things were going well. So I went in for just a regular appointment at 32 weeks. Um, I was actually 31 and six and my blood pressure was pretty high. Um, and I had been talking while they took it and I said, well, I should take it again. Like I was sitting here, I was talking, she took it again and she said it was higher. So they, um, they sent me to the hospital. I had to go, um, the midwife group was like connected to this like little community hospital because I was 31 and six and not 32. I had to go to the big hospital and they said they just, they wanted labs and they wanted them back immediately. They were pretty sure everything was okay because nothing, nothing had been going on my whole pregnancy, but that they just wanted to make sure, obviously, like we want to know that everybody's fine. So I went and they even, even at the hospital, like everybody was like, oh yeah, we think you're fine. And they put me in this room that was like not set up for anything. It was like this like extra room that they had that didn't have all the things they needed. They were constantly going and grabbing things, but my blood pressure was super high. So they pretty rapidly started me on magnesium, which I don't know anyone who's ever been on magnesium. It's a nightmare. It makes you feel like you have the flu, which is a really great way to feel when you're having, you know, when you're already 30. Magnesium sucks. Intravenous Mm -hmm. magnesium sucks so bad. (laughs) It's kind of a nightmare, right? It's like great to feel that way when you're already 32 weeks pregnant and already feel crap. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. And so they started me on magnesium and they did like a 24-hour urine collection. I had lots of protein in my urine, but I was like totally asymptomatic for preeclampsia, except like my blood pressure was high and there was protein in my urine. So my body was clearly struggling, but I wasn't feeling any of it. And so it was like kind of annoying for me. I was like, I'm fine. My And baby was perfect the whole time. Like she didn't seem to be bothered by anything. She was measuring great, which like, obviously we know how accurate those are, which is a piece of this later, but she was measuring perfect. She was moving lots. Like nobody was worried about her. We were mostly just worried about me. So I was in the hospital for about a week. It's like six days. And then they, or no, I guess it was like Tuesday to Friday. Anyway, and they, meds had kind of brought my blood pressure down. I'd been off magnesium for a couple of days and they felt comfortable sending me home on bed rest. Um, so I was supposed to get, I was supposed to go to the doctor's office three times a week to get MSTs and go home on bed rest. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll go to 34. That was kind of the plan at this point. So I went home on a Friday and then uh, I think it was Monday. It was like, I went to bed on Sunday night and then woke up at like 3 a.m. on Monday with like a splitting headache, took my blood pressure. It was sky high. So we went to the hospital and at this point I had like my midwife's group obviously couldn't deliver me because we knew this baby was going to come early and and so they switched me to the care of a doctor's group that was just, you know, whoever you got, whoever was on call. Um, and so we had some weird experiences with some of the doctors. Some I liked more, some I liked less, whatever. And basically I, I came in and I had this super bad headache and my blood pressure was really high. They started me on magnesium right away um, and basically said, okay, you're having this baby now. So at this point I was 32 and six and the doctor so I had done some research in you know, my time on bed rest that there was no reason that this far along I wouldn't be able to be induced, that I wouldn't be able to 
you know, be kind of given a shot at uh, vaginal delivery. And I was, uh, I was like 50% effaced and I was like one dilated. And so it was like, all right, I'm, you know, 33 weeks almost and there's some progress. And so there was kind of some hope that for me, at least, I don't know in retrospect that the doctors had much. Um, it kind of felt like they just felt like they couldn't say no because there was no real reason not to. But I had some hope that maybe I would be able to deliver her vaginally. Um, and so we started an induction. They broke my water pretty early on because she was, I mean, she was floating, right? Like she was so tiny and nothing was putting any pressure really on my cervix at all. Um, they were doing Pitocin. I did that for, I don't know, a day, about 16 hours without an epidural. And they checked me and I was like, maybe a two. And I turned to my husband and I remember saying like, I could do this for like seven or eight more hours, but I can't do it for seven or eight more days. And that seems like about how long it's going to take to do anything. And so I got an epidural, which was good. I went to sleep um, and I kind of was hoping like I'd wake up the next morning and just like, oh, you're a five. Like things, like things were great. You got an epidural, you went to sleep, your body did what it was supposed to do. Well, I guess it's not really what it was supposed to do at 33 weeks, but, and so I woke up the next morning and they said, oh, we turned off the Pitocin in the night because the baby wasn't tolerating it well. And I like, I was so mad. Like I was just so annoyed. Like how long had I been sleeping and nothing was happening? And like, I'm, you know, kind of waking up with like this hope that like things are going to get better and nothing was happening. Like I was just so annoyed. So the doctor came in and she said, you know, we're, we're we're going to do a C-section. I said, okay, what does that mean? And I remember, oh, it's made me so mad. The stupid, she, I'm sure she was a lovely woman. She's very intelligent. But the nurse is like, <laughs> well, we're going to cut the baby out of you. And I was like, shut up. She did not say that. Oh, this oh, is real. Oh my gosh. We're going to cut the baby out of you? Yes. And I was like, obviously, I know that that's what oh. it means. But like, what are the steps between me laying in this bed right now and nothing is happening. Wow. And the actual cutting the baby out of me, dummy. Like, obviously, I know there are steps between here and there. Dummy. Is that your professional uh, um, diagnosis? <laughs> no. Dr. Zimmerman? <laughs> you are a dummy. <laughs> um, I, was, I was super annoyed. And then, like, obviously, and she didn't even, I don't even remember what she said, but. I mean, obviously, like, there are steps of, like, dialing up the epidural and, like, prepare. Like, my husband had to get dressed and, like, all these things. But, like, why would I know all of the details of the C-section? Like, why would I know that? And so we, you know, they went in for the C-section. And nothing was really, like, even emergent because, like, she needed to come out. But, like, it was fine. Like, nobody was, like, nothing was happening. My body, like, she was fine as long as they turned off the Pitocin. So she wasn't struggling. She, like... It wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. So they take me for the C-section and it was, it was pretty traumatic for me. They, like, I didn't, I didn't know they were going to strap my arms down. Um, nobody had told me that. Uh, I'm even getting emotional now as I'm talking about it in, you know, this position that the, the only term I've been able to come up for it is like, it felt like horizontal crucifixion. It was just like, what is happening? Mm. Like, why? I'm like a grown woman. Like, I can keep my arms down. Thank you. And, you know, they, like, there's this nurse there, right, whose job, because my baby was so early, who literally her job is just to stand there and take my baby away. And that was so hard for me. 
you know, they took my daughter out. And I remember, I remember like loving the anesthesiologist, right? Cause he's the only person in the room who his job is me and who like his job is to make sure I'm okay. And I, they like, he, you know, he told my husband like when they were taking her out and I have a video of her coming out of me. And I just remember like, I, <laughs> what I said to my husband was, is she perfect? And as my husband is like lovingly responding to me about my baby, the doctor goes, well, she's little. And I was like, shut up. Nobody's talking Aww. to you. I know. Like, of course she's little. And so, you know, this nurse takes my baby and takes her away. And my husband goes with her. And I am apparently really, really sensitive to like the epidural shakes. Cause I was just shaking like a leaf the whole time. I like, I actually fell asleep while they were sewing me up. I just remember feeling like, so much adrenaline leaving from leaving my body because at that time, like I felt like I had been living, you know, the last week of like, okay, whose life is more important, yours or your baby's, right? And like the answer to me is obvious that it was my baby's. But finally we were in this position where like she had her own medical team and they don't care about me. Like I could live or die and she could still be okay. And it was like, like, and I know it sounds really morbid, but it was like such a relief for me that like, the people who are taking care of my baby do not care about how I'm doing and don't have to like balance whether it's me or her. Like, no, the choice is clear. It's her. And so I fell asleep a little bit (laughs) and then I just was basically a zombie for several months. And so that was like this, it was a really traumatic experience for me, just not having my baby. And I healed really quickly from my C-section. I went back to work. I had my C-section on a Friday, no, on a Tuesday. And I was back at work the next Tuesday because I couldn't stand like not doing stuff while my baby was in the NICU. And it was just a really, really rough experience, her whole thing. Luckily, I am the, I'm one of seven kids. And while I was a C-section, the brother after me was what my dad calls, uh, he likes to pronounce all the letters. He calls it a Viva Threek. Viva Three. Yeah. (laughs) I love uh, it. (laughs) So my my oldest was my oldest sibling was a vaginal birth and there were three C-sections. And then my next brother was a V-back. Um, and my mom's issue it was regardless, she just never went into labor ever. But like V-backs for me were never like, I was never the person who was like, Oh, I've never thought of that before. Like that's a big part of like my family's story. And so I don't even remember exactly how I found the V-back link, but I just started like voraciously consuming every podcast because I knew it was something that I wanted. It was something that was really important to me. Um, the biggest thing that I took from my first daughter's birth was like, some, it felt like something had been taken from me. That was the piece that like was so hard that something was taken from me and was taken from my baby. And it felt, it just felt like something was missing. And so I really struggled with that. Um, and I like, Right after my like six week follow up, I started looking for different providers because I knew like I needed like normal gynecological care, but I didn't want to assume that with someone who I wasn't going to stick with into the future. So I started like interviewing OBGYNs and I found someone who it, like it felt like a really good fit. Um, and then my insurance changed and that person wasn't covered anymore. And so I kind of dove back into the process and I found a new provider. And um, this provider had actually been recommended by a friend of mine who has had like three V-backs, I think. Um, And she like had a good feel about him when she was originally potentially going to have a hospital delivery. And I like, I had a good feel for him. And I was like, okay, this is good. This is it. Like I found my provider. Wasn't even pregnant yet. Was like, we weren't doing IVF yet. 
but I was like, okay, we're good. Like I'm ready. And so I got pregnant last summer. We did an embryo transfer and it took and everything was fine. So yeah, I, I contacted Julie and Megan like two seconds into my pregnancy and I was like, okay, let's not like meet and start planning things yet. But like whatever like schedule things get on, like I want to be, I want to be first on that. I know, um, waiting was the worst. I know, <laughs> I know. Because I, I think we waited till I was like 12 weeks to like start talking about things. Yeah, yeah. it was like, not, yeah, like end of first trimester. Yeah. So I was with my, I was with my provider and things were going relatively well. They had me do an early gestational diabetes test, which I passed fine. They had me do another one later, which I literally, I don't know, I failed by one point and I was so annoyed. And he wanted me to take the three hour and I told him I wasn't going to, but that I would take my blood sugar four times a day for a week. And I did and everything was fine. Like it was fine. I did not have gestational diabetes. Um, My blood pressure was, uh, it wasn't technically like high, but it was like flirting with high occasionally. I have a blood pressure cuff at home. I take my blood pressure at home and I was always getting good numbers at home. And then I would get like borderline high numbers at the hospital or not the hospital, but the doctor's office. So I would bring him like, hey, this is what I got at home this last week. And so everybody was fine. Um, right around 30-ish weeks, I just started to feel like it wasn't, this wasn't a good choice. This wasn't like this provider wasn't going to fit. It just seemed like he would answer questions and kind of like trail off before he would say the thing that he knew wasn't the response I wanted to hear. Like, I, you know, I asked about induction. He'd say, well, you know, I think induction is fine unless... And I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, uh-huh. And I'm like a very straightforward person. And so I just like, unless what? Like, what is the end of that sentence? Um, <laughs> and he would, you know, and he would go on to say like, well, unless, you know, I don't think it's favorable. Or like, okay, like, what does that mean? What, like, that's cool, super subjective, not, like, evidence-based or anything. And I, like, at this point, I had seen maternal fetal medicine a few times, and they, like, everybody was was on board for the VBAC plan, except my doctor just didn't, he just didn't seem to be very supportive of it. And I, um, I started to talk to Julie a lot about, like, what I really wanted for this delivery. And the reality is, like, what I had always wanted from from before I was pregnant was midwifery care but with this pregnancy and with how scary and hard having a preemie was um, with my last pregnancy I was really afraid to go with midwifery care because I was afraid if I have you know if I need to have this baby born before I'm 34 weeks before a midwife can stay with me then I get pushed to the care of a doctor who I've never met and maybe a doctor group and I don't know what level of support I would get for maybe pursuing a VBAC Um, And so I kind of picked like this, like better of two evils for like, for lack of better words. And I had this kind of realization that what I was doing is I was doing the same thing. We kind of like complain about doctors doing in scheduling a routine C-section, right? Because a routine C-section is this like middle level risk. Like the highest risk is if you, you know, attempt, you know, if you toe lack and then it doesn't go well and the like the lowest risk is a successful VBAC and so we picked this like middle level and that's mm-hmm. what I was doing right like he wasn't like openly against it but it wasn't what I really wanted and I was like ah oh, dang it like that's not like I don't 
I don't support living that way. Like I don't like it. And so kind of realizing what was happening, there were no more VBAC supportive providers in my area. But after talking to Julie and talking to some other folks, we decided that I, I decided that I would drive 45 minutes to see an incredible midwife. So I decided that I would, I would drive up to Salt Lake and I would go see her and it like, it was so good. It was such a good fit with her, like right from the beginning. And again, like my blood pressures were like kind of high, but maternal fetal medicine wanted me doing non-stress tests. And so she would, she would take my blood pressure after the non-stress test. She would like give me time to just like relax and things were going super well. So things just kind of like stayed in that place. And I had an appointment with her. I was, I was 37 weeks and she was, she, she was like getting a little nervous about my blood pressure, but like nothing was actually wrong. Right. And so she was like, okay, like, what do you think about inducing at like 39? And I was like, I really don't want to, like, if something presents itself, if like, there's like a medical reason to like, I'm not against it. And she was like, okay, like I'm, I can live with that place. Like that if you're open to like, if something goes wrong, we can talk about it. I was like, yeah, totally okay with that. So I woke up two days later at 37 and two, took my blood pressure and it like for the first time in my entire pregnancy, like it was not a good number. It was not like, and I felt, I felt uncomfortable about it. I felt not okay about where it was. And I felt pretty strongly that it was time for my baby to come. So I'm not like, I actually wasn't very scared at all about like, him being born at that point, right? Like I was more scared about like labor not going the way I wanted, but having had like a 33 weeker before, I was like, please, he's 37. I don't even care. He'll be totally fine. Even if he has Nikki time, it'll be like two days. It's fine. And so I texted Julie um, and I texted my midwife and my midwife said, okay, come on in. And I had been, so I had been at the hospital, like all of this like COVID-19 stuff was going on. I had been to the hospital a couple days prior because I'd seen some reduced fetal movement. Everything was fine. It was just like a weird night or whatever. And at the hospital, their policy was to support people. You don't get to switch them out. You get the same to support people the whole time. I was like, oh, perfect. Because I'd heard all this rumbling about different hospitals having different policies and whatever. And so two days prior, I had seen this policy and it was great. And then by like, by the next day, the policy had changed to only a spouse. And it was really important for me to have my doula there. That wasn't like, that to me was not negotiable. And so I had talked to my midwife about it. Um, and she said, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go raise a fuss basically. And so we go in for the induction. Um, and she said, oh, oh, by the way, this is the day. Also, this was my birthday, the day I woke up and decided my baby should be born. It was my birthday. And it was the day that we had um, earthquakes all day. Yeah. So this is this is pandemic earthquake birthday induction date. So we get there and she said, you know, she had spoken to someone at the hospital. She had like had these conversations and that they would allow my doula to be there from the time I entered active labor until the baby was born. And she had to go right after the baby was born. And we were like, okay, like, and at this point, all the hospitals in the area had changed their policy to allow professional doulas. That if you like could show your credentials, and it wasn't just like your sister saying she was a doula, that a doula could be present, that they were part of the medical team. They didn't count as like an extra support person, except the hospital where I was delivering. And so we got this exception. I was like, I will take it. Like, great. So we called Julie. We let her know. And she said, okay, like, keep me posted. Tell me what's going on. 
So we go to start this induction, and I was like somewhere between 50 to 70 percent of face, like super soft is all anyone had been saying for weeks, but just dilated maybe to like a one. And so we felt pretty strongly that like, okay, if we can get this like Cook's catheter in that, you know, I'd get to a three pretty rapidly because everything was just like, oh my gosh, I forgot this part. (laughs) Yeah. When you were only there for the second half of this part. So Kira spent, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour trying to get a catheter in my cervix. So we learned a couple things about my cervix. It's like your cervix is supposed to be right, like a straight shot through the vagina. Mine is not. It's like kind of hidden around my pubic bone a little bit, which wasn't a problem in my first labor because I wasn't effaced. I wasn't very soft, but I was super duper soft. And so everything was just kind of like a mess. And it just, these tools are not made to go at a 90 degree angle. These tools are made to kind of straight shot. So she's been about 45 minutes, thought she had it at one point, but like filled the balloon. Nope. It's in your cervix. It's not past your cervix. And it just, it didn't happen. Like she was not able to do it. And so we talked about it. We decided that with how soft everything was, maybe just starting the low, slow Pitocin, like getting him, like encouraging him to go down, that we would get the dilation we needed. That with everything so soft, like we really didn't need much. We just needed something. And so we started that game and they got an IV in me, which is kind of a big deal. Nobody gets. Nobody gets IVs in me except in like one spot in my elbow, which nobody wants to do in labor and delivery, but they got an IV in like below my wrist where they wanted to put it, which is a big deal. So we're all, we're all pretty pleased. So we start the low slow Pitocin um, and we just start hanging out. Like she comes in and checks every once in a while. My husband and I are chatting. Um, they had a no food policy, which we ignored. And this is, this is how things are going. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah, at one point my husband had kind of like, he was just like, Hey, do you want me to like get you some food? And there's just like, I heard you guys talking about food earlier. And I was like, yeah, you can just leave. Thank you. Um, I didn't love the nurses at this hospital either. They just didn't feel particularly warm. I don't know. At any rate. So we're maybe 10, eight to 10 hours into this induction process. And some nurse administrator comes in and it was very bizarre because I was like, my butt was facing the door and she sat on like that side of me. So I couldn't like really even see her without like turning a lot, which is kind of strange. Um, And she sits and she says, Hey, you know, I know that you have a doula. I have some frustrating news. There was some sort of a miscommunication and you won't be able to have your doula here for any of your labor or delivery. And I was like, I, I'm a little confused because I'm aware of that policy. And I was, told that there would be a specific exception to that policy in this case. And she was like, yeah, I'm not sure how that got sent down, but that's not happening. And so I was, uh, I was frustrated. She, and she kind of like sat there like waiting for me to say like, oh, it's okay or something. And I got, I don't know, maybe a little passive aggressive for my own, maybe it was active aggressive. I don't know. Um, but I basically just said like, I don't, if you're done communicating your policy, I don't know why you're still here. There's not like, if there's no discussion, if there's no, what, why are you here? You can go, like, get out. She was like, I'm really sorry. And I was like, okay, please leave. So I texted my midwife and let her know what was coming, going on. And she kind of zoomed in like a bat out of hell to have some conversations with some people and was not able to make any headway and was really frustrated. I, at this point I had, 
I felt pretty defeated. I felt pretty much done. Like I was, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes away from saying, let's just do a C-section and be done. I'll, you know, I'll be done in an hour and we'll just call it a day. And I didn't really want to talk to Julie because I felt that way. And I felt pretty like, I felt a lot like a failure. Um, right, Julie like, doesn't know how to shut <laughs> up. Right, it's true, which was a really <laughs> good thing in this instance. Right? I was like, I don't know, it's fine. And I was just kind of trying to ignore her a little bit. She was like, let me, like, why don't you call me? We'll talk. And I was like, no, I don't want to talk. And she was like, I'm going to call you. So she called me and I, of course, just start like sobbing as I'm telling her all that's going on. And she said, well, you can go if you want to go. Like, you can leave. And I, like, literally the thing that kept me there was I didn't, as long as I was, is I didn't want them to have to try to place a new IV. And I knew they wouldn't let me leave with my IV. And I was like, I don't know. I don't, like, she was like, go to the U. Or you didn't say go to the Well, you did, anyway. First of um, all, <laughs> just yeah. let me clarify a little bit. I just gave her several options yes, that did. were okay to do. I did yeah, I didn't, is very careful word choices. <laughs> you said if you wanted yeah. to transfer, you yeah. could transfer. Yeah, like or you could stay was, there, or you could, or we could uh-huh. do virtual support, or I mean, let me know what you want to do, and we'll and we'll figure out how to make it happen. Yep, and I like so I hung up the phone with Julie. She like had to take some other call, and the nurse walks in to turn up my pitocin, and I kind of hadn't even like I'd mentioned it to my husband, but I hadn't really decided what I was going to do. The nurse walks in to turn up my Pitocin and I just looked at it and I said, please don't turn it up. In fact, I'm probably going to have you turn it off and I'm going to transfer to another hospital. <laughs> and she just like looked at me like, um, oh, yeah. oh, okay, I will go and tell Kira. And I was like, okay, feel free. And I like quickly texted Kira because I wanted her to hear it from me first because I love her. And I was just like, hey, like, I think I'm going to leave. This is really important to me and I think I should go. So she comes in about two seconds later and she's on the phone with the head resident at the U and just kind of making sure like she knows who's on call and they know what's going on, that the transfer of care will be seamless and that things will be okay. And they basically like, um, well, Julie was kind of engaged in the same process with like the midwives of like, hey, if my client wants to do this, what would that look like? And like, can we make this happen if this is what she wants? And so I called Julie and I was like, oh, I guess I just decided because this just happened and I told her to leave me alone. Um, and they, they had said they wanted me off Pitocin for an hour and an NST at the end of that to make sure I was stable before transferring me. And so we did that. We kind of hung out and just chatted for a little bit and then did an NST and everything was fine. And so I wasn't even discharged against medical advice because at this point, like, we just called it a failed induction and moved on. Like I was fine. I didn't have preeclampsia at this point. Baby was totally fine and stable. Um, and so we just called it a day and we left. And uh, like, and it, it's interesting because it like. It was pretty it, much the coolest thing ever. Like the, like I love seeing a woman take control of her birth. And that's exactly what you did. You're like, okay, here are my options. This is what this is what is available to me and this is what I'm going to do. And you just did it. It was like one and done. Like, that's it. You're doing it. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was, it was really good that like my husband was super supportive and Julie was super supportive. And even my midwife was like, Hey, like you need to do what you need to do. And like, if this is what you need, then go pursue what you need. Like, and so she's wonderful. And I like, 
took pictures with her in the hospital before I left. Like, I was like, because you're still, like, a really important piece of this. Like, you are, I mean, you are the bridge that got me to, like, seeking the things that I want in this pregnancy. And so, yeah, we went. We, you know, got some Wendy's on the way um, and then showed up at the U. And they were all, like, I was a little afraid of kind of being labeled a problem child. Because, like, oh, I left because I couldn't have my doula. Like, I don't know, it kind of felt like. I was afraid it would be interpreted as like an adult temper tantrum, basically. Um, but everybody was super great. You know, the nurses are going through all the questions and they're like just super supportive of like getting what you need. And the residents kind of like, so the, the way it works is like the residents have to screen any transfer and determine if it's like low enough risk that you can be overseen by the midwives. And we kind of did that process pretty quickly because we'd done some of it already. Um, and they determined that that was fine and, you know, the midwives could take my care and that wasn't a big deal. So the first thing the midwives do when we get there is they try to get a Foley catheter in, which, you know, I was familiar with that process. I was maybe a little bit more dilated at this point. I had maybe gotten to like a two-ish instead of a one-ish. Um, and so we were maybe hopeful that with a slightly more open cervix, this process would be a little easier. And the midwife said she got it and she thought she got it what I what I feel pretty certain happened was that she actually inflated it in my cervix but couldn't tell because of how soft everything was because the same thing happened with Kira a couple times but because I was a little less open it was more obvious in that setting because she got she got the catheter and she thought and we were like okay great this will just like make some progress um and then I just started bleeding it was so it was more blood than felt normal but less blood that then felt dangerous it was kind of like this middle ground where we had to like maybe figure out what was going on they were a little bit afraid that it might be an abruption but if it was an abruption it was a very minor abruption and the doctor the resident came in and said you know if it's an abruption like we just monitor baby and like babies can labor through minor abruptions and they can tolerate them sometimes and we just monitor if baby's doing okay then that's fine but it became a little more clear as we were kind of looking at the source and that it was like coming out of the catheter tube that it it people were still talking about potential abruption but as soon as they took it out all of the bleeding stopped so it's i don't know it felt pretty clear to me that it was not an abruption and that it was you know a catheter being inserted inserted in a really vascular place and it was just bleeding because literally as soon as it was gone like the bleeding was over but what did happen is baby kept falling off the monitor and they kept not being able to get him. And so everybody was feeling a little bit nervous about how he was doing. And so they decided to break my water. And again, I'm still like feeling pretty hopeful at this point because like he's like a normal sized baby, right? Like, so I'm hoping they break my water and he just has to fall, right? He has to engage in my pelvis and he has to put pressure on my cervix. Like, that's how gravity works. Like that is how, like that's where he is. He belongs there. So just like do your job. Right. And so they break my water and they put an internal um, monitor on him, which was that same process of tools that are not designed to work at 90 degree angles. So that was also a lovely and incredibly painful process that happened several times because the monitors kept falling off. Um, so they keep me on this low, slow Pitocin through the night. Not much is happening. I'm feeling just like minor movements. Um, the next morning, the midwife comes in and checks me and just not really any progress. And so she's wanting 
to keep it on the low Pitocin for a while longer. Um, and we do that for a while and just, and then just decide that although there's been no change, like at some point we have to change something. So let's just start regular Pitocin, um, and start amping that up. Um, so they do that. And at this point, Julie went home to take a shower because nothing was happening. And, you know, she'd like slept on my hospital floor the night before. Um, and so my husband and I just, my husband and I just hung out. I think you tried to sleep on the chair and like lean on the table, but then ultimately ended on the floor. Right. And so we just go through the day. Like it was pretty uneventful, honestly, the day itself. Like I watched next in fashion on Netflix, which is wonderful if you like fashion shows. Cause I really love trash TV and the day was pretty uneventful and we got to around maybe five or six and my contraction pattern starts picking up. I'm like up, I'm moving, I'm doing lots of asymmetrical movements. I'm like trying to get him into a gate. I'm feeling very like good about the whole process. Like my contractions are picking up. This is like feeling like actual labor. I'm like, I'm able to move cause baby's on an internal monitor. And so we're not worried about losing him. This hospital doesn't have a no eating policy. So I'm like, I've still got energy. I've like had lunch and breakfast. It's no big deal. Everybody's good. Everybody's happy. So like labor starts to like really kick in. And I like, so I did like hypnobirthing classes and I also have like a pretty high pain tolerance. And so I'm just like, yeah, okay, this is good. Like I'm having to breathe, but like they're good. They're intense. I want them to be intense. Like I want you to, you know, put my baby where he's supposed to be and for him to be born. Um, And so I was actually feeling pretty hopeful. And I just, he started to like struggle a little bit when I would be in certain positions. So I'm like sitting up on the, on my like birthing ball and he like would have dips like during a contraction. But if I like lean over onto the bed a little bit and like give him a little bit more space and breathe a little bit more deeply, things are fine. So nobody's really worried like, okay, fine. Silly baby just needs oxygen. Jeez, what a jerk, right? And so I'm totally you know, not a jerk. <laughs> Obviously, that was a joke. I know that maybe he's not I'm, Don't worry, I'm almost six weeks postpartum, and my baby is still alive, so he's been getting plenty of oxygen. And he's and very so, well loved. Yes. And so this continues, but then it starts to get more and more like restrictive. What I can do and have him not like he starts to have some late D cells, and we're to the point where I can only lay on my side. I can't do anything else without him starting to have late B-cells. And my blood pressure, I had like a couple uh, severe range blood pressures. And so they did some labs and basically the urine in my protein went from like, what was it, like 200 to like I think 9, it was like 700. Oh yeah, no, 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 7,000. I don't yeah, know, something it like, like it skyrocketed yeah, big it time. Was, it like clearly preeclampsia had kind of like set in in this time frame that we'd been here. And I get like, nobody was super worried because we're like in this place where like, we're doing what we need to be doing, but they did want to treat me with magnesium, which I, I did not want. And my blood pressure is like, I felt like we were so close to like, whatever this was, I'd been having really intense labor for a while. And my first baby was so magged out, like, and, and again, like, I don't know that everyone knows this experience, but like, it's so draining. It's also draining for your fetus too. She like my first baby didn't open her eyes for three days after she was born because she was so she was so full of magnesium in her tiny little body. And I really wanted to avoid that in my baby. Like it wasn't even just about like me feeling like crap, but like I didn't want that for my baby if I could avoid it. And I felt like we were really close and so I um I talked to the doctor and she felt okay and I was like, I don't I don't want to do it. Like I don't want to do it right now. 
And so we didn't. Um, and I continue to labor and it's about 1am. Um, so it's been, you know, something like unto 40 hours at this point. It's like 1am, the midwife comes and she checks me and I'm two and a half, three, just kind of sitting in the same place I've been sitting for two days. And we kind of talk about various options. Julie suggested like, you know, do we maybe want to consider an epidural? My nurse suggested, do we maybe want to consider like a Pitocin holiday? Like take a break and start that back up and see what's happening. And my husband and I have everybody leave the room and we talk for a little bit. And it just became really clear to both of us that it was time to be done. Um, that whatever we were going to try was going to make my little baby more tired, which he clearly already was. And that it was time to be that the right, sorry, even though I, I'm emotional talking about it, um, but that the right choice was for him to get here as quickly as he could at this point. And so we talk about it. We, you know, I cried a lot about it. It's not, it's not what I wanted. It's not what I had, what I had, like I switched providers so that this wouldn't happen, right? Like I switched hospitals so that this didn't happen. I did so many things. So this didn't happen. Um, but it just, like, I don't know, I feel like as a mom, you have to do things you don't want to do all the time so that your kid is okay. And it was clear to me that that was what I, that was the choice I needed to make. So, I, you know, we kind of have, Julie actually came back in first and, you know, we told her it's time to have a C-section. And so she went out and she told the nurse and the midwife and, Everybody came in and we had a little while to wait. They ended up putting me on oxygen because baby was still just struggling every time I would contract. And even sometimes when I wasn't, he just, his oxygen was doing weird stuff. Um, and we didn't know why. So they finally get me in. Oh, and I was very clear about my C-section that I wanted a clear drape. Um, I wanted delayed cord clamping. And I wanted immediate skin to skin. That these, these were really important things to me. These are things that I wanted as a parent for my baby. I guess the drape was for me, not the baby, but the rest of it was for the baby. And the hospital was really great about all of those things. They like they had to like dig and find the clear drape. Like half the people told me they didn't have one and like one person was like, no, we do. I will find it. And Julie actually wasn't allowed to be in the C-section. It's interesting why though, um, mm -hmm. because I asked the, I asked the resident and the resident said, I don't know, I have to ask the attending. Like, we've had people in before. Like, that probably should be fine. Um, he came back in. Julie wasn't allowed to be in because of the shortage of personal protective equipment. Right? Um, I was like, can I just put, like, my jacket yeah. over my face? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so oh, it was so sad. Wanna, they didn't want to spare the masks, which, I don't know, to me, like, actually felt like a much more valid reason than just, like, no, we don't want you there. Like, yep. I was like, okay, like, I can... And luckily, like, unlike my first C-section, right, like, my baby didn't have to go anywhere. So I wasn't left sitting there alone. Like, my husband was there. Like, he had taken two steps over to the pediatrician where my baby was and then, you know, came to me immediately. And so unlike my first C-section, I wasn't left kind of sitting alone in the room, um, which was good. Um, so they take me in, and they didn't – for some reason, they, like, placed the spinal before my husband was there, which I didn't love because needles in my spine freaked me out. And they kept like they telling me, me like, out too. Yeah, in my spine. And, they, and they kept telling me to like put my back out more. And I was like, I don't know that you know how this like part of my body articulates. Like you should, but this is weird. Anyway, 
they had plenty of time to place the spinal and then it was I don't know it was it was fine like it was interesting because I expected it to feel more traumatic than it did because like it isn't what I wanted but all the time I do things that I don't want that don't leave me feel broken and afraid because they took him out of me and there's this picture of him and all the doctors my husband took this amazing picture of Simon my son and all the doctors kind of looking down at me and I can see him you can't see me in the picture but I can see him because the drape was clear and I'm just like looking at this human and he cried immediately when they took him out of me um and they took him over to the pediatricians and everything was fine and so within like a minute or two um my husband brought him and put him on my chest and I was I was holding him and I was looking at my baby my oh also they had told me he would be huge he was seven pounds and one ounce I'm looking at my like tiny perfect lovely baby that I was able to like take to a place where he's safe like I could deliver him when it was safe to deliver him and he got to stay with me and so it was just this bizarre experience of like I don't want this I don't like this it's not what I would have chosen but it's what I needed to do for my baby because we discovered during my c-section so one of the things that my doctor had told me early on was that my placenta was very high um, which we were all very happy about right like it was super far away from my cervix super far away from my c-section scar like it's a great place to have a placenta if you're shooting for a VBAC. It, however, we learned was a terrible place to have a placenta when your baby has their cord wrapped around their neck. So we discovered that his cord was wrapped around his neck and was literally holding him suspended in my abdomen. So this is why he was never able to engage. This is why I was like... That's why you wouldn't tolerate laboring in any other position. Like we tried everything I knew and every time we moved her, it was, we just did not like it at all. We were Um, were really struggling. (laughs) And so it like, it completely prevented, like I'm totally effaced, but like almost no dilation because he can't, he literally could not engage in my pelvis. And so like him being born would have had to have like necessitated an abruption basically. Um, and so I like there, I had some kind of relief in knowing that and yeah, that was, he was born and then he stayed with me and we snuggled for an hour. And I, like, I look back at my, my first, my first baby. And I look at like even the months that followed and that I was, I was a mess. Like I was kind of a disaster. Um, emotionally and I just I don't I don't feel that now I feel like a human I feel like I'm here for my baby I feel like I was connected to that experience even though it wasn't the experience that I wanted as opposed to my first baby that I felt robbed of the experience of her birth so yeah that's my story yeah you know (laughs) I have lots of things to say (laughs) But for the sake of time, I'm going to keep it super short. I honestly, like, there are like a dozen things in your story that we could take apart and do an educational piece on. But what I want to focus on right now is the decisions that you made related to your care that didn't give you necessarily the birth that you wanted, but that left you feeling in control and that you were the one calling the shots. I actually just finished writing a blog about um, birth trauma, like healing birth trauma. 
And one of the biggest indicators of whether a parent or not is more likely to experience birth trauma is their perception of care. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of times in your story where everything was flip-flopped around. You took a lot of different path changes. And even from starting with one provider, going to another provider, to not being treated right at that place. And so you left to find another hospital and provider. So three hospitals, three different providers, mid-induction. Like, I think that that, well, there are things in there that could be traumatic for some people. I think the fact that you were making those decisions and taking charge and you had the support and respect from your team to let you call the shots and do those things. I think that that was like, that's a huge deal. And I think that that's the one thing that I want to impress upon everybody that's listening right now is that there's a lot of crazy things going on right now. COVID-19, it's just such a weird time to be alive. I mean, am I right? It's a mess. It's a mess. And I mean, we're literally going through like a global trauma. Do you, right now. Yeah. Right. Do you know what's so kind of crazy about those two hospitals is they flip flopped. Yeah. And now oh, the really? one you birthed at won't allow doors anymore. Allow hospitals, and the mm-hmm. one that you, and the one that you left is the does. only one allowing hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's so funny. I know. Like, it's just, like you said, like it's changing every day. Like this global, pet, like it's just nuts. It is nuts it is what's nuts. happening right now. But what mm-hmm. I want to tell you, I, and do you know what we just, there, nobody really has answers. We hope mm-hmm. and pray that things get better soon. But if they don't, I want to tell you a little analogy. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but it's been a while for sure. Think of your birth and your pregnancy like a Swiss army knife, right? You have lot like Swiss army knife have like lots of different tools that you can just whip out whatever you need, whenever you want it. Prepare for your birth by building your Swiss army knife of birth tools. Maybe one of the tools is a doula, a childbirth prep class for sure, getting educated, um, the right providers, hospital and support team for you. Um, maybe it's a home birth. Maybe it's a hospital or birth center birth. Maybe you need rebozo or a birth ball or your hair scratched with that really cool head thing that you used in your labor. I love that. What, what is it called? I don't even remember. Maybe, I don't know. It's just one of those like weird, like it looks like you put yeah. a whisk open and it's yeah. a head scratcher. Yeah. Everyone know what I'm talking about? All right. Yes, so. I have- Yeah. (laughs) My husband has one too. He just loves it so much. And I mean, fill your Swiss army knife of birth with all of the tools that you possibly can so that when things go in unexpected ways, and they pretty much are right now, just across the board, you have lots of tools that you can pull out and utilize. And you know what? You might only need one or two of those tools. But you might need every single tool, including the little toothpick that nobody ever uses. Like, I don't even know why they put the toothpick in there. Maybe you need a little tiny head scratcher in your, in your back. And I, think, you know, like. I think you also might need every tool. And you might even need to use the tools that you have in a way that you didn't even expect. Exactly. Exactly. And so doulas are still so valuable. I know every single doula I know is busting their butts right now to 
provide virtual support and what does that look like and making educational videos and information and pamphlets for their clients, um, connecting with the hospital staff and checking in with the um, with the nurse coordinators, finding out what the policy changes are and keeping up to date with everything and spending more time prenatally with their clients and, yeah. and teaching their husbands more things or their partners more things because partners are really having to step up right now and use and having your doula on the phone with you or on zoom with you or on even on the other side, just texting you is so valuable for you during this time. And so I would impress upon that to you, fill your Swiss army knife birth kit. There's my daughter with, um, all the tools. Yeah. With all the tools that you can. Sorry, my husband unlocked the bedroom door. Uh, (laughs) So I got a renegade in here. And I want you to do that. And I want you guys to go and find the podcast image that's on our social media today and comment something that you added to your Swiss Army knife of birth and how it helped you maybe in an unexpected way. Yeah, well, and I think like I didn't expect that like what I needed from my midwife was to like coordinate care somewhere else right that is not what I but like that's what I needed from her was her to be this like incredible advocate for me and support for me even though it wasn't in my labor absolutely she was amazing she was working really really hard for you she's the best all right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I could talk about this all day, but we are so grateful to you for your example and all of the things that you did that made a ripple impact across our local birth community here. And we're so grateful that you were in control of your birth and that you made the right decisions for you. And I can't wait till this quarantine is over and I can come squish that little boy's cheeks. Please do. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.